What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, it is the reason for that, that this show has existed all these years. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Indonesia, here is your phone number, one 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Just ask that question uh, by putting it in the comments box. That's where you want to put it, in the comments box. Then uh, Rich will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. We'd love to answer that question of yours on today's program. Again, the number 833-288-3986. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm great. How was your weekend? Uh, it was it was lovely. I was with the good folks uh, of uh, uh, St. Michael's and the Co-Cathedral of uh, Galveston, Houston. Ah. Those two churches put yeah. on a, a conference on marriage and family, and I got to speak along with some other folks and uh, uh, had a wonderful time meeting wonderful people. So thanks again to everybody in Houston. Really enjoyed being with you. Was it as cold in Houston as it is uh, here in Alabama? I think it was a lot colder than Houston is used to. Ah, uh, probably. It was so. not as cold as Alabama was, uh, <laughs> but it was. Uh, but it was. It was pretty nippy. It was pretty nippy. I believe it. Here is a question from Paul in Chicago. Recently, I heard a priest say that divine revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. I thought it was the deposit of faith that ended, and that it's through the church, the pillar and foundation of truth, that divine revelation continues. Please clarify. Sincere thanks, Paul from Chicago. What we need to do here is to disambiguate the word revelation. Okay. We we have a, we have some equivocation about the word revelation. Um, if if by revelation you mean um, things that God has revealed that are uh, absolutely necessary for Christian life and morality and human flourishing and, and the moral life, then that comes to an end with the deposit of faith. All right? um, there's a sense, there's a much broader sense in which it'd be impossible to put an end to revelation. I mean, I could make the revelation to you that this morning I had a, a, a whole wheat Ezekiel muffin for breakfast. Mm. Right? I have just revealed that to you. Ta-da! <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's a revelation of a sort. It is not divine revelation. It's no. not divine revelation. Um, now, in that kind of extended sense, the Church does recognize a form of divine revelation, but it's not normative for Catholics, and that would be private revelation. So let's say that, for example, um, uh, you know, a, um, uh, a, a priest is, uh, uh, like Padre Pio, is, is hearing confessions, and the Spirit of God communicates to him the penitent who is in the confessional with you right now is guilty of adultery. And this sort of thing was reported to have, been, to have happened to Padre Pio. 
And a guy comes in and says to Padre Pia, well, you know, I, I lied, I steal, stole, I cheated, uh, you know, I kicked my dog, I'm sorry for my sins, amen. And, uh, and the Spirit of God wh whispers in Padre Pio's heart, this guy's committed adultery. Padre Pio, supposedly, uh, would say to a soul like that, well, what about adultery? D didn't, didn't you do that in 1965, you know, with so-and-so? <laughs> and the guy would say, oh my gosh, this priest can read souls, right? Well, that kind of—we could call that a revelation, because it's something that God revealed to Padre Pio. But obviously, he did so only for a very narrow reason, like, and that is to affect repentance and contrition and reconciliation in one particular soul with respect to one, one very narrow issue. It would not become necessary for all Catholics throughout time to confess, you know, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, and Jesus Christ is the only Son of the Lord, you know, and that Mario committed adultery in 1964. <laughs> <laughs> it's not part of the deposit of faith in no, that sense. Right? No. And so the public revelation of the Church is what we call, you know, or the deposit of faith, is what came to an end with the death of the last apostle. All right. Thanks for clarifying that. Here's one now from Marie in Canada. Hi, Dr. Andrews. We're all going to end up in a new heaven and a new earth. Well, I can understand getting a new earth, but why do we need a new heaven? What's wrong with the one that there is right now? Or is there a different meaning to that? Yep. Yet another disambiguation. The word <laughs> heaven, of course, in in both ancient and modern languages could refer to a lot of different things. It uh -huh. could refer to the place that God dwells and the abode of the blessed after death. Um, that's often the way we use the word, but it can also refer to the heavens, uh -huh. as in the heavens and the earth, you know, give glory to God, etc. And we were just talking about, um, you know, the, the upper atmosphere. Okay. So in, when we're talking about a new heavens and a new earth, we're talking about the physical heaven, uh -huh. not the metaphysical heaven. Got it. Here's one from Joe. Uh, when Jesus expelled a demon, the Jews protested. Jesus responded with the question, by whom do your people cast them out? Well, what is the history of Jewish exorcisms? What historical documents, if any, mention this? And what was their authority to perform exorcisms? Um, yes. So there is actually a, a significant scholarly literature about Jewish exorcism. Really? Yep. I. This is not a field that I am particularly learned in. Second Temple Judaism is not my area, uh, but I have. I mean, I have read about it. Uh -huh. I can't give you a book because, like I said, it's not. It's not. It's not top of mind for me. But yeah. there, there is a literature on that. Um, and, uh, um, uh, and I actually just sort of Google searched uh, Jewish exorcism while we we're talking right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting all kinds of hits. So, like, there is a tradition of Jewish exorcism. It precedes the New Testament. Jesus obviously is familiar with it. Um, in terms of the authority, so, you know, you could, you, could, you could describe an authority that is internal to the logic of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would be different from the way a Christian would understand that very same question. And, and this comes out in the book of Acts, when there is a demoniac that is liberated by the Apostle Paul. Um, but uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fellow who's demon-possessed who's confronted by some would-be exorcists that say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we cast you out. And he says, well, Paul, I've heard of, and, uh, and Jesus I know, but who the heck are you? And he yeah. beats them up and chases them away. To underscore the fact that there's something distinct about Christian exorcism. There's an authority there because of the divinity of Christ that doesn't apply to other traditions. Joe, thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we'll get to the phones. Love to hear from you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. 
It's called to communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. You know, we are very blessed here at EWTN to be on so many different platforms, online platforms, the smart speakers, the EWTN app. I mean, you name it, we're on it. But uh, one of the most important, in my opinion, is that local AM and FM radio station that uh, quite honestly gives you the local view of things uh, from a Catholic perspective that uh, any kind of a, a live stream just cannot do. So if you don't have a Catholic radio station in your neck of the woods, find out how you can help start one. Powered by the truth of the church and EWTN's dynamic radio programming. You can email a wonderful man named Steve at this address, radio at EWTN.com. Radio at EWTN.com. And uh, Steve will get right back to you. We'll uh, get to the phones in just a moment here on EWTN's Call to Commune. David, you have something to, it, to report. Yes, I do. So we had a question before the break about Jewish exorcism yes. in the first century. And voila, I have a source for you now. What a guy. Right. Okay. So it's an academic article by the name by the title of It's Jewish Exorcism Before and After the Destruction of the Second Temple. Wow. In the book was seventy CE A Watershed in Jewish History. Um, edited by Gideon Bohawk, published by Brill. Wow. So there you go. Jewish okay. exorcism before and after the destruction of the Second Temple. There's your source. Fantastic. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Gene, a first-time caller from Mariana, Florida, listening on the great Guadalupe radio. Hey, Gene, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi. Um, I uh, heard about the Pope's recent proclamation uh, allowing for blessing of same-sex couples, and I was just curious uh, how Catholics can anticipate what changes there might be in, in doctrine. Uh, I'm a, a sort of a lapsed Catholic. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, being a Catholic myself, I will answer this from the subjective point of view. How do I, as a Catholic, anticipate changes in doctrine? That's the way you put it. So my orientation as a Catholic is that I anticipate no changes in dogma. No changes in dogma. There okay. are irreformable truths that were revealed by God, by Christ and the apostles, that are part of the deposit of faith, and because they're true, they can never be changed. And there are things like the doctrine of the Trinity, and the Incarnation, and the Atonement of the Death of Christ, and the Divine Foundation of the Church and the Sacraments, and as well as the fundamentals of the moral life, the, the, the constituents of moral well-being that, uh, that cannot change with the vagaries of the age because they're they're dependent on, they're written within the very fabric of human nature. And that would include things about human sexuality, including the, the normative status of the male-female procreative union and, uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the inadmissibility of sexual activity outside of that. All of that is irreformable and, and can't change. And so I, exp uh, you know, I, 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 I believe more firmly in the permanence of those things than I do that the that the earth will continue to revolve around the sun. I mean, one day the earth will stop revolving around the sun, and yet God will never cease to be the Blessed Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. So that's it's, it's more permanent than that. Um, it's the same thing would be true of human sexuality. Uh, now, within that framework, I also recognize that Christians live their lives in a variety of different cultural situations, uh, and that uh, uh, they face different challenges, 
uh, both their own personal moral challenges and, and challenges of, of, of practicing, teaching, and pastorally guiding the people of God. And there's no way I can anticipate, say if I had lived in the, um, if I had lived in the, in the 14th century, I don't think there's any way I could have anticipated Gutenberg and the invention of, uh, of, of movable, you know, typeset print. Yeah. And the social revolution that would recur, that would occur in the church as a result of the invention of printing. And it radically transformed the way Christianity was understood and practiced. A technological invention forever changed uh, humankind's relationship to the Christian faith through the invention of printing. And, yeah. and the whole, uh, uh, um, uh, Jacques Lefebvre wrote a whole book on that topic, right? The, the, the appearance of the book and the, 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 the social um, revolution that that, that that involved. Couldn't possibly anticipate that. Uh, and when it happened, of course, opinions were deeply divided on what is the best way to respond to the technology of the book as Christians. A, a lot of the impetus for the Reformation, for example, was, uh, was born out of, in, in the hearts of printer's journeymen. Natalie Davis wrote a book about that called um, I think it was called Printer's Journeyman, no, the, the Printer's Guild in Lyon in uh, the early 16th century, uh-huh. and showed that people who were involved in the printing industry in the early 15, in the early 1600s were much more likely to become Protestant, right? Because they had this, this very elevated view of the role of print in civil life and society, and of course Protestantism sort of billed itself as a religion of the book in a particular kind of way, and they related to that in a special kind of way. Um, there were reactionaries in the Catholic world that that really wanted to kind of repress that. Uh, then there were, I think, cooler heads that realized, well, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And, and Catholic printing, of course, uh, you know, exploded with, uh, with just a, 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 an encyclopedic list of apologetic works to try to counter the Protestant proposition. But again, within the Catholic world, there would be various points of view on how to handle that technological intervention. I think we're in a similar situation now in that I don't think anybody could have anticipated the way sexual politics and ideology would have unfolded at the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, right? Um, I don't think you could see how the construal of identity would... Uh, there's always been homosexuality, right? There hasn't always been a kind of homosexualist uh, public ideology, right? The way it's developed. You couldn't anticipate that. And and in the same way, there's they're going to be divergent pastoral approaches within the Catholic Church and the Christian world at large to say, well, how should a faithful Christian who believes in the patrimony of the Church, who believes in irreformable dogma, who believes in the indissolubility of Christian marriage and all that sort of thing, what's, what's the most efficient pastoral response to the social phenomenon? There's room for disagreement because it's a complex issue. And, and you know, we'll look back in 200 years and may look at policy interventions that members of the hierarchy made or people in the laity made, and we'll go, well, that was a really dumb idea. That didn't work. <laughs> and others will seem, you know, like, well, that was obviously the right way to go. Mm. In the same way, we can look back today at the 16th century and say, well, you know, reactionaries that just wanted to suppress the book uh, were obviously wrong, you know, and uh, you know, we'll have benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Is that helpful for you, Gene? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, I, I suppose um, I... My thought, I'm a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from Catholicism, uh, was that with Jesus' proverb on good fruits, um, that I don't see good fruits from 
even if you want to be, you know, nurturing and, and tolerant to certain uh, sections of your flock, that it it doesn't seem like that's actually being, um, you know, it's actually compassionate. You're, you're sort of justifying sin, but I understand what you're saying. Okay, so let me say a couple words about that. Um, so first of all, um, it, it's a misinterpretation of the Pope's, first of all, it wasn't the Pope's proclamation, it was some Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith put out, wasn't in the Pope's name. And uh, uh, But in any event, the, the, the proclamation, as you put it, was not permission for priests to bless gay unions. And, it, 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 and I know it's been construed that way in the popular press, but that's nothing in the document actually says that. Right. It's, it's, it's about the situation when people who are involved in gay unions request a blessing and what that could possibly mean and could a priest respond to that in a positive way without, in fact, condoning something intrinsically immoral? All right. Now, I recognize there can be differences of opinion as to whether or not it was a prudent statement. Now, something that may be different between Catholics and, and LDS, uh, my understanding is that in the LDS, the, the belief is that the prophet in Salt Lake City is just that, that he's a prophet, that he's operating kind of like directly under divine control, and what he says goes, man, that's just the way it is. Catholics have a more ambiguous relationship to their hierarchy in that we think that the Pope and the bishops and the priests have an office, and they have a job to do, and they'll be held accountable for that job, uh, but we don't have the guarantee that they will always necessarily do it well. And so I don't have to, like, I don't have to look back at the popes of you know, the Renaissance and justify some papal decision to raise an army and invade Florence. Like, I don't, I can look back and go, yeah, that was a really dumb idea, <laughs> you know? And, and many of the Pope's contemporaries, you know, have often said, that was a really dumb idea. There are really a very few narrow areas where a Catholic is bound in conscience to concede what the Pope has said. Really, when the Pope pronounces something as an infallible dogma, yeah, then the Catholic has to offer the assent of faith. Otherwise, a Catholic is perfectly free to stand back and say, I don't know that was a good idea. I don't know that that was prudent or wise or, or otherwise. Now, regardless of whether or not you're construing it correctly. And so as a Catholic, you know, I've, I judge the fruit of Catholicism not based on, you know, one particular pastoral intervention, uh, but on the, the, the course of the Catholic Church through history, the ministry of grace and the sacraments and the example of the saints to bring souls to holiness. And, uh, and I, I think the Church continues to do that effectively, not in everybody, obviously, uh, but then those that are willing to cooperate with grace. And that's sufficient grounds to be a motive of credibility. Gene, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go now to Ron, a first-time caller in Cleveland, listening on The Rock, AM 1260. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I, uh, I'm a Baptist. I got a, <clears throat> I've got a church. <clears throat> And I have a, 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 a Catholic friend, and he has a church also, and he's got a crucifix. I have a cross, but uh, he uh, he says he has a tabernacle, whatever the church, and that's what makes it uh, makes it different. Now, so uh, maybe you can explain that a tabernacle. And what if his church doesn't have a tabernacle? How is it different from my Protestant church? Yeah, thanks. So we're, we're talking about the physical building here, right? Not the whole institution of Catholicism, but just the actual architecture. Is that what we're talking about? 
Yeah, absolutely, we are. Yeah. Okay, architecture. So a couple things about Catholic architecture that would be, and the Catholic building, that would be distinct from a Baptist. Um, so the, 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 the big one, you put your finger on the big kahuna, right? And that's the presence of what we call the Blessed Sacrament. That's the consecrated host, the consecrated Eucharist. Baptists have communion, the Lord's Supper, where they take bread and typically grape juice and pass them around in a kind of memorial of the death of Christ. Well, they, they, that ceremony, as you know, the roots of that are in the words of Jesus on Holy Thursday when he said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is the chalice of my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in memory of me. And for reasons that I'm, you, you probably are aware, Catholics take a very realistic view of Jesus's words. When he said, this is my body, he said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And that through a supernatural transformation, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. And so Catholics believe that in the consecrated host, the physical object that you hold in your hand, that we have, albeit in a miraculous and mysterious way, we have the actual body of Christ. Like the body of Christ that, 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 that walked on the earth, that was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that died on the cross, that rose from the dead, that is currently seated in heaven. That body we have substantially in our hands, reserved in our tabernacles. So you ask yourself the question, would there be a difference between a Baptist church where nobody was home and a Baptist church where you walked in and the Son of God was sitting on the front pew? <laughs> what if he didn't say anything? What if he just sat there on the front pew? And you just sat there. And you said, well, I want, I want to go to the church and pray this afternoon. I just kind of feel like hanging out in the church. And, you know, First Baptist down the street is empty, but, uh, you know, but, um, but Grace Baptist down the road, well, I heard that Jesus was sitting in the front pew. He's not talking to anybody. He's not saying anything. He's just there. Would you want to go to Grace Baptist down the church where Jesus was sitting in the front pew? <laughs> I think most people would. And Heck so yeah. for, for a Catholic, like we think we're in something of an analogous situation. He's not in the front pew, but he is in the tabernacle. So that's one difference. Um, another difference in Catholic architecture, you mentioned the difference between a cross and a crucifix. There's a more fundamental difference, and that is that uh, we have a big flat table right up at the front of the church that we call an altar. And as you know, an altar is a kind of table for a specific purpose, namely it's used for sacrifice. And the central rite of Catholic worship is to offer the body and blood of Christ to God in memorial of Calvary for the reconciliation of the world. And so the Mass is in fact a sacrifice. And so a Catholic church is like a temple, you know, an ancient temple where people would go to sacrifice animals, right? There's something of that nature about the Catholic Church. Namely, it is a place of sacrifice where we offer the body and blood of Christ to God the Father, who is really present for us in the sacred host. Um, Baptists don't do that, right? They don't go to church to offer sacrifice. And so the churches aren't designed to reflect that spiritual reality. Um, Classically, Catholic churches would be built in a cruciform shape. It would be the shape of a cross. Uh, again, calling our mind to the sacrificial realities before us. Catholic churches also contain—Baptist uh, churches typically have a big swimming pool type thing at the front where people get dunked, right? Um, Catholic churches typically have a baptismal font at the front of the church uh, where children and babies are baptized— and upon entering the church, lay Catholics uh, are encouraged to dip their hands in water that has been blessed and recall to their mind their own baptism, because our theology of baptism is a good bit more robust than the Catholic view. And so that's, again, reflected in our architecture. We also have uh, pictures all along the church 
that call our minds to the great heroes of the faith, the saints, as well as scenes from the life of Jesus and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So we could go on and on, but those are some substantial differences. Hope that's helpful for you, Ron. Thanks so much for your call from Cleveland. In a moment, we'll get back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. If you've got a question for Dr. David Anders, this is a great time to call. 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We have two lines open, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. So we got a question here, or rather a statement from Miles watching us on Facebook. Miles says, The reason I'm not Catholic is because I adhere to the principle of sola scriptura. This principle isn't about dismissing other religious authorities, but it emphasizes that scripture is our most reliable guide, being the inspired word of God. Sola scriptura cuts through this by directing us to the enduring truth of Scripture. It's not just about theological accuracy. It's about grounding our faith in the most dependable source we have. In short, sola scriptura is about keeping our faith anchored in the timeless wisdom of Scripture, ensuring that our beliefs and practices align with its divine teachings. It's a call to embrace the clarity and truth that Scripture brings to our spiritual journey. Again, that's from Miles uh, watching us on Facebook. Yes, wow, I love this. This comment, I really appreciate it. So uh, let's see. I'm gonna. It's not just about theological acts, it's about grounding our faith in the most dependable source we have. Okay, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. I really appreciate the the comment, by the way. So first of all, what is scripture? Now, I'm not asking for a definition of its theological nature. I'm asking you to actually delineate its contents. Like when you point to the Bible and say, "I've got the Bible," well, like what is that book that you're pointing to? Okay. If I flip it open and, and, and like look for the table of contents, what will I find? And my guess is, since you use Protestant language, Sola Scriptura is a Protestant term, that you're probably adverting to the 66 books of the Protestant canon. Okay, probably so. So here's my question. How do you know that's the right list? Who told you that was the right list? As I'm sure you're aware, there have been different lists in Christian history vastly different lists that have been put forth as the appropriate canon of the Bible. How do you know you have the right one? Now, oftentimes, Protestants challenged with this question. They, ha- they have an argument about, say, the relationship of Jesus to the Hebrew Bible, and we can talk about that, but of course it's not limited to the problem of the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament canon is even more problematic, even more problematic, because of course there is no evidence that Jesus named any New Testament book to be included in any kind of canon of the Bible. And we've, throughout history, we've had different lists of New Testament books. And the one that we have right now is not attested in its present form until the 4th century in Athanasius' Easter letter. You've got lists of New Testament canon that include First Clement, that include the Didache, um, that include the Shepherd of Hamas, that don't include Revelation, 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Hebrews. Um, uh, we've got different versions of Paul's letters that were put forth as canonical. Canonical lists with only the Gospel of Matthew. How do you know that you've got the right New Testament list? 
Now, there are two answers that have been given to that question historically. One is the honest answer, and that is that I get the list from sacred tradition. And to an extent, even most Protestants will acknowledge that, right? Oh, they have, I think, a, a squirrely way of acknowledging it. The other way is to say that God told me that, that I have had a subjective religious experience that has confirmed to me that this is the proper list. Uh, I find the second claim to be very deeply problematic. You probably do, too, if you think about it. But even if you hold that, you have to confess that if your basis for acknowledging the canonicity of the New Testament text is your private religious experience, then it is your private religious experience to which you advert and not first— and not to the objective word of God. And private religious experience can never be the basis of a public declaration of faith, because you and I can have divergent private experiences, and my private experience can give me a different list from yours, right? And and at that point, we're just left shouting at each other that uh, I have the Spirit and you don't, nah, right? <laughs> um, uh, my point being that the, the, the real reason that you hold to the 27 books that you hold to is that this was the this was what was included between the two, the, the cover, the front cover and the back cover, bound and published, you know, probably printed by Zondervan or Baker Bookhouse and put in your hands by your Baptist Sunday school teacher, right? In other words, your tradition handed you this list. And if you don't acknowledge the, the, the authority of tradition, then you, you can't even get the Bible off the ground. You can't even arrive at a Bible until you acknowledge the authority of tradition. I believed the Bible as a Protestant kid growing up, honestly, because my parents and my teachers and my pastors told me so. Sure. I relied on the authority of tradition, and they got that tradition from the antecedent Catholic tradition, which Protestants have made a big point of saying is not reliable. But if the Catholic tradition that gave us the canon of the Bible isn't reliable, then neither is the canon of the Bible reliable. Now, you, you've made the claim that 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 the that only Scripture is timeless wisdom and, and truly dependable. How do you know that? How do you know that? The Catholic Church holds that the tradition handed to us by Jesus and passed on orally through the Church is also authoritative and reliable. Right? How do you know that only your Bible is authoritative and reliable? Again, this is just an assertion. Okay? Uh, now, some people say, well, Catholic tradition is erred, but I can point to contradictions in Scripture. Now, Catholics have a way of dealing with contradictions in Scripture, but if the Scripture is your only authority, right, you're going to have to go outside of Scripture to some hermeneutical principle invented by men in order to account for apparent contradictions within it. Third, what did Jesus himself say about the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? Did Christ, in fact, confirm the principle that you're teaching? Now, sola scriptura is nothing else other than this, the idea that you can't put forth any doctrine to be held by all the faithful unless it can be confirmed by the words of Scripture. That's what sola scriptura means. If you're going to put something forth as a Christian doctrine, you better be able to ground it in the Bible. Okay, is sola scriptura a doctrine? Is it to be believed by the Christian faithful? Most Protestants say yes. Does it pass its own test? Can you find the doctrine of sola scriptura, namely... God intends these 66 books to be the church's rule of faith. Can you find that teaching in the Bible itself? No. The Bible never mentions its own table of contents or puts it forth as a rule of faith. Now, it points 
parts of the Bible point to other parts of the Bible as authoritative, that's mm-hmm. not a question. Mm-hmm. Does the Bible indicate that the Bible is the sole rule of faith in precisely the way that you speak? No. On the contrary, it does the opposite. When Jesus makes provision for handing on the Christian faith, he doesn't point us to a book. He establishes an institution led by particular men with a charism, with an office and authority, and says, go into all nations and make disciples and teach everything I have commanded you, all of which was oral, and I will be with you to the end of the age, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ's explicit word is that we have a dependable source for, of divine revelation in the teaching of the church that he established. So the very scriptures to which you point establish for us a different rule of faith. Finally, sola scriptura is not a dependable source at all. It is entirely insufficient. Based on the principle of sola scriptura, there is no principled way to distinguish a dogma from an opinion. When two Christians read the Bible and disagree, which everyone admits that they do, how do you know whether their disagreement is substantive or not? Whether or not it is the kind of thing over which Christians must split? A faith-defining issue. Most Protestants that I know will, will come up with some very vague criteria like, well, it has to be about salvation. That's the essential stuff. Okay, how do you know whether something's about salvation or not? See, that's just, that's just restating the problem in another form. Yeah. Let me illustrate the depths of your difficulty. Most Protestants I know today would say, well, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, sin, and redemption, that's essential. Everything else is kind of, you don't have to believe it. But Protestants in the 16th century didn't think that. John Calvin wrote in 1541 in his little treatise on the Lord's Supper that the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist was, and I quote, tant nécessaire au salut, so necessary for salvation. At the Marburg Colloquy, 1528, I think, Luther said that of Zwingli, one of us was with God and one of us was with the devil. And by the way, I'm not the guy with the devil mm-hmm. because Zwingli rejects the doctrine of the real presence. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to believe the real presence or not. I'm telling you that 16th century Protestants thought that question was dogma, and the answer to that question determined whether or not you could go to heaven. No Protestant today would hold that, or at least very few of them would outside of Lutheranism. All right? Again, illustrating that the Bible alone can't tell you whether something like the doctrine of the real presence is in fact necessary for salvation, i.e. whether or not it's a dogma. Only your own arbitrary stipulation can answer that question. So sola scriptura is a totally inefficient rule of faith that cannot answer fundamental questions about what is to be believed or not believed as a Christian. The only thing that, that proponents of the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible can agree on is that it's inerrant and sufficient. But beyond that, they cannot agree except in an arbitrary way that's just dependent on their cultural circumstances. So it's a doctrine not taught by the Bible. It's, it's internally inconsistent. It's a performative contradiction. It rests on a canon that can't be established outside of tradition, and it leads to interminable difficulties in, actually, in, in its application. Witness the 50,000 different Protestant denominations that all construe the rule of faith in vastly different and incompatible ways. So for those reasons, I would have to really strongly disagree with your contention that the Bible is is a dependable source and the only one for the Church, whereas the Catholic concept of tradition is entirely stable 
and is witnessed to by the 2,000-year continuous history of the Catholic Church as an institution with an irreformable faith that's never changed. Miles, thanks so much uh, for checking in with us here at Call to Communion on EWTM. We hope that's helpful for you. If you missed part of our show today, you can always check out the Encore. That'll be tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern, or uh, you can go anytime to the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours. Just go to EWTN.com radio and click on Podcast Central. You will get there very quickly. Let's go now to William, a first-time caller in Preston County, West Virginia, listening to the great St. Paul Radio. Hey there, William. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I was just wanted to find out. Um, I was listening to a TV, Catholic Church, and the priest said if you have somebody that's not been really good, but not really bad either, that he's in purgatory, and if you say uh, 30 rosaries, one rosary a day for 30 days, that that will help him to get out of purgatory. And I was wondering, is that true? All right. The answer is neither yes nor no. It's more nuanced than that. So there is a, it's a doctrine of the Catholic faith that, that some souls go to purgatory. Some souls go to purgatory. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, to begin with, salvation is not simply a matter of where you fall in some continuum of good versus bad, right? You know, really good, a little bit good, not so good, bad, super bad, awful bad. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Any soul that dies with the grace of God in their heart will eventually get to heaven. Any soul, right? The grace of God in your heart means that you're reconciled to God, that you love God and you love your neighbor. Right? So fundamentally, that's your, that's your orientation, that's your disposition in the world, is to loving God and loving neighbor. If you've got that, you're going to eventually go to heaven. If you don't have that, you're going to hell, period. Right? And that's... Nothing you can do about that. That's the end of the story. For people who don't love God, don't love neighbor, they've turned in their will against God, they're not going to make it to heaven. But for those of us who do love God and do love heaven, and hopefully I'll be in that number, don't know, but I'm shooting for it, um, if you're not totally detached from sin, and you maybe haven't, you haven't made reparation to people you know, with whom you have to be reconciled, that sort of thing, yet purgatory is a possibility. The Church teaches that for souls in purgatory, the prayers of the Church can help. So we on earth can pray, we can offer masses, we can offer rosaries, we can offer prayers for the souls in purgatory, and that can help. Okay. Um, uh, however, it would be a mistake to think that prayer works, any kind of prayer, whether prayer for the soul in purgatory, praying for good weather, you name it, that any kind of prayer works in the manner of a magical formula. Right, so that hey, all you have to do is say this prayer thirty times, and then you get you necessarily get the intended outcome. Nothing in sacred scripture, nothing in tradition, suggests that that's the way prayer works. Prayer prayer is uh, a relational reality; it's a dialogue with God, and any kind of human dialogue. You know this. What if uh you know, what if your wife came to you and she said you know, I'd really like to go out to this restaurant on Thursday night. And you really, you, William, you just really don't want to go to that restaurant on Thursday night. She said, what if I ask in a mechanical tone of voice 30 times, <laughs> right? Uh, or versus, what if she said, but Bill, it's been so long since you've been out to dinner, and I'd really like to. Like, which of those is going to move you more, 
right? And it's the same thing with God, right? It's the, it's the prayer offered in charity and faith and hope and virtue that's more efficacious. It's not a matter of its mechanical repetition. William, thanks so much for your call from West Virginia. Let's go now to uh, Corporal Lee in Clarksville, Tennessee, listening on Immaculate Conception Radio. Corporal Lee, what's on your mind today, sir? I want to thank EWTN for taking my call. And my question is, in numeral 22, when Balaam asked Balaam to come and curse the land of Israel. Now, Balaam had, what power did Balaam have to curse the land of Israel that God had to intervene? Eventually, he had some type of power because God had to intervene. Sure, sure. I appreciate the question. So I'm, I'm going to try to answer this question with some subtlety and with some nuance, okay? The Catholic position on the Old Testament is that we, we don't take the Old Testament only in its kind of plain-spoken, literal sense, as if that were the end of the story. And we recognize that the books of the Old Testament are written within a certain, certain social context— um, uh, to a certain kind of people, and the real significance of the Old Testament is as it moves the story along ultimately to the person of Jesus. And so, you know, practically speaking, like when you read the Old Testament, you read a lot of things in the Old Testament that you go, man, I don't see how that flies at all, you know, particularly like the civil legislation. If you read the laws of the Old Testament, you know, laws about adultery or laws about slavery or laws about uh, military conquest and taking spoil in war. You read these things today, and you're like, oh my gosh, really? Is that the will of God? And when you get to Jesus, when Jesus talks about that stuff, he makes it pretty plain that, that he stands pretty removed from it. So, you know, like the Mosaic Law said, a man can divorce his wife. Jesus says he can't divorce his wife. He contradicts what Deuteronomy said. Yeah. The Pharisees in Jesus' day said, how can you do that? How can, how can Moses say, divorce your wife, and you say, don't divorce your wife? How can you contradict Moses? And what—this is in Matthew 19, by the way—and what Jesus says is, well, Moses said those things as a concession to your weakness. He said it because of your hardness of heart. But that really doesn't match the, the mind of God. Right? So there's kind of relativism that Jesus brings to understand the Old Testament. So let, let's bring that around to the question of, uh, of prophecy and, 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 uh, and Balaam and cursing and blessing. I think it's fairly obvious that ancient Near Eastern people, not just Israelites, but Canaanites, Babylonians, Akkadians, you know, all, all over the ancient world, believed in an almost magical way in the supernatural power of language. And so that, that's a feature of civilization around the world. It's a, you know, and it'd be superstitious, you know, the idea that if I, you know, if, I, if I just pronounce words of blessing or cursing, that that has some kind of power over people. Uh, that's obviously a superstitious belief. But it's one that many people in the ancient world had, including people who lived in the world of the Bible at the time of its writing. And so the way I read Numbers 22 and other passages like this in the Old Testament is to say, you know, the sacred author recognizes that the people to whom he's writing have superstitious beliefs about cursing. Um, so the, the, this narrative, this story exists within that philosophical world to let people know 
uh, hey, you don't have to be worried about cursing because the God of Israel has got your back. Now, he didn't write it as a kind of scientific treatise on whether or not curses are effective. He stayed within the thought world of the ancient Israelites. He, he left intact their superstitious belief in the power of cursing, but told a story that neutralized it in their case because the God of Israel had their back. And so from a 21st century perspective as a Christian, looking back on that, I don't think Balaam had any independent power to curse any more than I think I could, you know, just say some words and affect the outcome of the presidential election, you know? <laughs> I mean, every every election, there's some group of sorcerers that casts a, a, a curse or a spell on one of the other presidents, and you know, you'll notice how the presidential nominees are never particularly worried about that, yeah. right? You know? I, and, and I think the same thing pertains back then. I don't think people had some independent power to print out some spell and, and, and bring about effects in the real world. But, but many people thought they did. And so this narrative is there to neutralize that fear in those people by saying, hey, the God of Israel has got your back. That, that's how I read the story. Corporal Lee, thanks so much for your question today from Clarksville, Tennessee. Here's uh, Brian now on YouTube who says, I am considering joining the Catholic faith. I have two children with the same woman. We have been together for eight years unmarried. Would us living together unmarried present an obstacle for joining the Catholic faith? Yeah, thanks. So it depends. Do you intend, whoa, to turn your phone off when you're on the radio? I think it's a good idea. Um, Do you intend to uh, maintain conjugal relations? Um, Are you going to have a sexual relationship? If you do intend that, then you can't become Catholic. Because, say, if you go for baptism, in baptism, you are stating that you intend to change your life. It doesn't mean you'll never sin again, yeah. but it means you, you at least have the intent, you have the intent to reform your moral life, and, and cohabitation without marriage, of course, is, a, is an immoral act according to the Catholic Church, so you're going to intend to live a chaste life. Now, there are a couple ways out of this problem for you. One is you get married. Yeah. Like, get married, man. Y- y'all have kids together. I mean, why not give your children the stability of a married couple? You don't marry because it's pleasant for you, necessarily. I mean, I hope it's pleasant for you, but it doesn't have to be. You can marry somebody that you're not attracted to. Nothing incoherent about that. You marry for the sake of your family, not for your own pleasure, not for your own financial stability, none of those motives. You marry for the stability of your children. That's why you marry. There's all the difference in the world between saying, Hey, you know what? We're physically attracted to each other. I like sharing my bed with you. Let's have that kind of relationship as long as it is comfortable. And as soon as it becomes uncomfortable, we'll bail. Between that and saying, you know what? For the sake of our kids, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you, ever. Your, you know, your, your teeth can fall out. Your hair can fall out. Randy Travis sang a song about it, Forever and Ever <laughs> I'm In, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm never going to leave you. And all my worldly goods I thee and thou, what I have is yours. We're together in this thing through thick and thin for the sake of our kids. That's a very different kind of home. And it's a home where children thrive a lot more than one where their parents are in an ins- a fundamentally unstable union that could in principle end tomorrow. Yeah. Right. So go ahead and marry. If you don't want to marry, but you say, you know what, I don't want to deprive them of their mother and the father, you can also always just become roommates. And there are people in the Catholic Church in that situation. They live under the same roof 
with a man or a woman that they used to have a sexual relationship with for the sake of the children, but now they live a chaste and celibate life. You could do that too. Okay. Brian, thanks so much uh, for checking in via, uh, I believe it was YouTube. Here's one now also from uh, Lisa, also on YouTube. What is the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit, and how does one actually commit it? Uh, It is the sin of final impenitence, meaning uh, die hating God and neighbor. That's that's the one you can't come back from. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Linda, thanks for your question via YouTube. Here's one from Matt on YouTube. Why did Mary have to be immaculately conceived? If she were born with original sin, how would that have affected the incarnation? Right. She didn't have to be, and potentially it wouldn't have. Hmm. Right? So there's nothing illogical in the idea of God assuming a human nature born of a sinful woman. Like, he could totally have done that, and it, in principle, and it would not necessarily have had any material impact on Jesus' ability to fulfill his sacred office. However, it was fitting that Mary be immaculately conceived. It's sort of like asking, what happens if I show up without my dinner jacket on? You know, well, in certain contexts, yeah, you could do that, but it's fitting for you to have the dinner jacket. Right, right? Actually, right. I've never been to an event where I needed a dinner jacket. Right. <laughs> um, uh, it was fitting for her to be immaculately conceived in view of the dignity of her being chosen to be the mother of God and that she might serve as a kind of iconic exemplar of Christian holiness. The whole end of our rebirth in Christ is, of course, purification from sin. Uh-huh. So the mother who becomes the mother of God is our spiritual mother as well, and thus an icon, a type of the church, uh, in whom we can see exemplified the life of perfect holiness to which we are all called. And the Immaculate Conception really underscores that divine dignity. Matt, thanks so much for your uh, question via YouTube. We also heard from Tyson on YouTube, but we don't have time to answer that question today, so we're going to hold that question over until tomorrow. Uh, Charles will make a note of it. He'll do a little copy-and-paste action there. We'll get that taken care of uh, for tomorrow's show. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you and appreciate all of our listeners for checking us out here today on EWTN Radio. Remember, we do this show five days a week, Monday through Friday at this time. So do check us out on tomorrow's program. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. See you tomorrow here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.